I want to go over a list of accomplishments by five amazing people, and I would love to see if you could guess their names. Okay, so if you're in the room, you just shout it out if you know the answer, and if you're online, use the chat box to let us know who you think this is. Okay, there's no prizes, just the satisfaction of winning which for some of you is good enough, okay? Um, after treating injured Union soldiers on the battlefield during the Civil War, this person went on to found and serve as the first president of the American Red Cross. Who is it? And online, no one knows. Okay, Clara Barton. It's okay, we'll put all the answers up at the end here. Clara Barton, okay, a computing trailblazer. This person invented one of the first easy-to-use computer languages, which revolutionized the field of computer programming. Anybody? Starting off 0 for 2, it is Grace Hopper. Hopefully, people online are doing better. Uh, online, you could at least use Google, right, if you really wanted to. This singer won 12 Grammys, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and is considered one of the greatest jazz singers of all time. Ella Fitzgerald. Is that what you said? Nope, it's not what she said, but I gave her credit for it. Okay, this physicist won the Nobel Prize not just once, but twice for research that led to the discovery of radioactivity as well as the element of radium. I feel like Rebecca should know this. <laughs> okay, how about Marie Curie? Marie Curie. Yes, okay. And this person is the most acclaimed site-specific architect in contemporary America, known for works such as the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. 0 for 5 here today. 0 for 5. It is Maya Lin. Maya Lin. Okay, so since none of you got any right, I want to give you something really easy. I hope you can answer this one. Can anyone guess what all five of these people have in common. The chromosomes is the right answer. That's the answer I was, they are girls. They're all women. Yes, good observation. They are all women. Now some of them, um, well, I was hoping that some of them you had heard of, but apparently not. That's okay. Um, what you now know is that all five of these women contributed greatly and significantly to society in very different fields. Um, and so wanted to start off that way because we're continuing and concluding our series in the beginning. And today I want to talk about God's dream for men and women, for humanity. And during the series, we've been going back to Genesis. So if you want to use those blue Bibles, or I highly encourage use of the Bible app, we're going to go to Genesis chapter one, like we've done the last couple of weeks. Now, while you're going there, let me recap. God has this dream for the earth. God has this dream for society, for the world, for everything that he has created. And this dream is one of community and beauty and unity. And obviously, but also sadly, we are far, far, far away from what God intended 
for his creation. And yet, thankfully, God didn't press the cosmic reset button. Thankfully for all of us here today, um, he didn't start over. Rather, he did pursue us. Like we were singing in those songs, uh, God pursues us even though we wander away from him since day one. And part of what he's done isn't just pursuing us, but that he's partnered with us. God isn't just riding up in the clouds, hey, I'm here, like, why don't you believe in me? But rather, he talks to normal people like you and me and says, let's work together on restoring creation. And so that is exactly um, what we've been talking about. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus today, and I, I never assume that everyone is a follower of Jesus, or even within that kind of follower of Jesus life, there's different stages. But um, if you're a follower of Jesus today, a Christian, that you are absolutely fundamentally, no questions about it, um, called to partner with God and restoring the, his dream for the world. Um, but as I mentioned, we're going to actually be talking about men and women today. So if you remember in week one, we read out of Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So in week one, we talked about how God creates everything that we see. There is nothing, and then there is all of the something. And there's one thing that in all of God's creation that he sets apart, one thing, one type of creation that he sets apart and says, you're different, you're created in my image, and that is people. It's you. And because you are made in the image of God, if nothing else today, you have value just because of that, just because you are made in the image of God. But now looking at all of you, I know that you have more than just that value, but the foundation of value that we stand on is that God created us in his image. In the original language of this passage, uh, Hebrew, human beings, when he talks about creating people, is spoken of in both the singular and the plural, meaning he created him, he created her, and he created them. It's interchangeable in which he can, the writer could use it both ways, which means that me as an individual, him or you, her, uh, you reflect part of the image of God. But it also means that together we reflect the image of God. And so what does that mean? Well, it's really quite easy to understand. Each of us are like a piece of a puzzle. Um, Every piece of a puzzle is important if you're trying to create the puzzle and put it together, right? If you're missing a piece, it just doesn't go together. And every single one of us has immense value. But by ourselves, what good is one piece of a puzzle? You can't really make anything or do anything with it. But when we come together, we make this beautiful thing. And every single person in here has an element of God on them, in you, through you. And when we come together, it's only in a community of human beings can we fully reflect the image of God. You alone, by yourself, at home, in your car, by yourself, you do not completely and fully reflect the image of God. But here this morning, right now, together, where two or more gather, we reflect the beautiful image of God. Now, sidebar here, um, before I even start talking about um, God's dream for men and women, I'm not talking about marriage. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Right before we start, we're not talking about marriage because the marriage relationship is just one example of how men and women can reflect the image of God, but that's just one part of it. And I want to back out and go bigger because you don't have to be married 
Okay, you don't have to be married to reflect the image of God in a community. Um, so if you're single here today, nothing is wrong with you. I just wanted to make sure I stated that. Sometimes you feel like churches or churches around the country will be pushing single people to, to meet someone, to get married, and to have kids. We don't do that. We think single people actually, uh, they can serve better because they have more time. Is that sort of true? Yeah, they don't have kids screaming at home, right? So we love our single people. And today we're going to be talking about men and women. It has nothing to do with being married, although it can include that. But back to what I'm saying. We were created in God's image. You are set apart from the rest of creation. You are set apart. And then last week we talked about how God uh, created us with a job to take care of creation. God, uh, We read in Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them, the humans, and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And that is what happened. So not only are men and women created in the image of God, but they themselves have a job that's set apart. God doesn't go to the lions or the birds or the fish and say, hey, it's your job to take care of creation. He goes to men and women and says, it is your job. We were created as equal partners and caring for creation. You don't see God single out the man or the woman and say, it's your job. You are ultimately responsible. He looks at both humans, men and women, and says, it is your collective job to take care of creation. So if it's this plain, as I'm trying to make it seem to you that men and women are on equal footing within the kingdom of God, why is there so much confusion about that? Why does there seem like there's not just cultural hierarchies, but even within the church hierarchy where men are over women? I mean, why, where do we get that from? And um, I think it's in chapter two. So if you're following along, you just go to the very next chapter. And in verse 18, um, then the Lord God said, talking about man who is alone at this time, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. And I think it's right there. I think it's that word helper or whatever translation you're using has a different kind of fill-in word right there. But when we think of helper, we think of an assistant, we think of a secretary, we think of a somebody who's not the guy, but they're somebody helping the guy. And that would actually be just be a very terrible um, misunderstanding on the reader's part because um, if we were to look at the actual Hebrew word, and I don't like doing this, I don't do it very often where we look at a Hebrew ancient word, but in this case it actually is important. And the Hebrew word here for helper is azer, like razor, but it's azer and it's spelled with an E. Um, Azer is more often than not mentioned um, in a military context. It's mentioned um, in a military use of the word over a hundred different times in the Old Testament. And most of the time, Azer is referring something about God. It's referring something about God's strength, God's power um, as our helper. Now, okay, so you hear the word Azer, helper, and when we think women, and in the church that's been interpreted as the guys are over the girls, But what do we do with all of these passages that mention God as the azer? Does that mean men are over God? And we would say, obviously not, or I hope you would say, obviously not. That's the right answer is obviously not. There's no guy above God. So what that is saying is that azer, this word, doesn't mean somebody is below someone at all. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when we read about this word in the Old Testament, God is helping guys accomplish something big. 
that they can't do on their own, that they needed intervention. So if anything, when God creates this azer, it's like, this is it. This is perfect. You're on equal footing and you need each other to accomplish the mission. It's not about hierarchy. The azer is a warrior. And when God looked at man, he created, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. There's no, we don't want loneliness. We don't want isolation. He says, I'm going to create you an azer, a warrior. And so he created a woman. Now that's your calling regardless of age, marital status, or circumstances. Women are to be called warriors and work with God and alongside men as partners carrying out the mission of God and God's purposes on this earth. This is the world that God created. That was God's dream. It was about partnership. It was about gender equality. It was about oneness and unity. And when he stepped back at the end of creating everything, creation, you and me, putting us in charge of taking care of creation, he looks back and what's he say? He says, it is very, very good. And we know that that goodness did not last very long. When Adam and Eve sinned, they shattered God's dream um, for people. Not only does sin separate us from God, but it separates us from each other. That's why our mission at Madison Church is to connect people with God and each other because we recognize that it's not just your relationship with God that's broken. It's your relationship with your boyfriend, girlfriend, with your spouse, with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your bosses. It doesn't matter. We recognize that there's a fracture in every relationship. Well, why is this? Well, I think that there's this really interesting passage in Genesis 3. So now we're going one more chapter. You're on two. Now let's go to three. And in verse 16, God says to Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is another one of those passages that I think it taken out of context. God here, the writer is talking about what God is saying to Eve. And what is happening here is that God is describing what has happened. God is describing what has happened. Now, this is something that happens in the Bible a lot that a lot of us who read the Bible, we get confused. Whether you're reading the Old Testament or New Testament, we get confused between two terms, prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive is, this is the way it should be. The Ten Commandments are prescriptive. God is telling you, this is how it should be. He is prescribing it to you. Then there's descriptive. And this happens a lot in the Bible. This is the way it is. God's not saying it's right. God's not saying it's good. He's just saying this is the way it is. And so you can tell where when you're reading the Bible, one of the questions you have to ask is, is God prescribing this? Is this a command from God that needs to be obeyed? Or is this something that God's just describing? And I firmly believe that what God is describing here is one of the first consequences of the fall. See, before sin, and pain, and suffering, and evil, and everything else we don't like, men and women are on equal footing. We just talked about that. feel like we established that. And then after the fall, God isn't prescribing a change in the relationship, but rather God is describing what is going to happen from now on in his not perfect world, okay? Having one gender rule over the other one is not God's dream, for humanity. That is the present world that we live in, but it is not how God wants it. I think it breaks God's heart. And I think that we still see this curse playing out today. Women hold less than 5% of the CEO positions of the 500 largest companies. There's a large pay gap between men and women. 
Globally, there are approximately 63 million girls denied the right to education simply because they are not a man. The United Nations estimates, estimates that as many as 200 million girls are, quote, missing in the world today. And what that means, what the United Nations came out with, is said 200 million girls. And what did this mean? It meant they were killed or aborted or abandoned and died simply because they were born a girl or because they found out they were going to have a girl. This is the consequences of the fall. So when God is describing what's going on, he's describing an imperfect world. And we see that ripple effect today about the gender inequality that is all around us. Sadly, the effects of the fall and the curse aren't just something that happened in the world around us. It absolutely positively happens inside the church. Throughout history, the church has fallen into the patterns of the world and put a hierarchy of men over women. We've limited opportunities for women who are fully um, made in the image of God. Too often, we've sidelined women telling them that they can't lead or they can't teach. Or what's worse, at least in my opinion, is that women can lead and teach. They just can't lead and teach men. That sucks. Too often, the church has lived by the curse, not the dream. Too often the church has lived in the curse, not in the dream. And in doing so, we have limited our potential in connecting every person with God and each other. If we want to talk in this nation or in the world why we're becoming more and more what they call post-Christian, that means people are leaving faith behind, it's because we're only playing with 50% of the pieces a lot of time. We're only representing one aspect of God, not the full aspect of God. Is this just the way it is? Should we accept it and move on? And I'm going to say no. I'm glad that you're here or that you're watching online because I think that we should fight back. Because what we are standing between isn't somebody having a nicer house or a newer car or a better life. I mean, it is a better life and it it can include some of those things. But the mission of God is so important because you and I, we stand between people and an eternal destiny. And and sometimes that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to remember when we're going into work and clocking in. But at some point, we run out of time on earth. And then at that point, it's one or two directions. And we've gone at length to talk about this in other series. I can't totally unpack that now, but that is why the mission of God is so important. That's why we need both men and women, because we stand between people and heaven, or we stand between people and hell. And what are we going to do? And I, I mean, and I hope that that burdens you. I hope that it, it weighs a little bit on your heart. That's good. It's not supposed to make you feel bad, but it's supposed to say that there is a real responsibility. And that's why we're doing this series, talking about God's dream and, and caring for creation and gender inequality, because we need everybody. Jesus came to restore God's dream. There's a passage in Luke 8. I love this story. Um, There's a woman who has suffered from chronic bleeding for the better part of a decade, if not longer for a decade. And she's done what any one of you would do with a constant ailment. She went to see the doctors and the specialists and whatever they had their ancient day equivalent to. And she tried different medicine. And no matter what, she just wasn't being healed. It wasn't fixing the problem. So for 10 years, she suffered from chronic bleeding. Now, she hears that there's this rabbi, this Jewish teacher that's coming to town named Jesus. And what she has heard about Jesus from other people is that Jesus has healed people. And so this woman does what a lot of other people in town do who have something wrong with them. They're like, well, I'm going to go see if, if, if he can heal me. I mean, it's worth a chance, right? 2,000 years ago, if you were bleeding for a decade and you heard that this guy might be able to help, 
Certainly. And that's exactly what happens. There's crowds all around pushing up against Jesus. And this woman kind of wiggles her way through the crowd. And it says that she touches the fringes of his robe. And that she is immediately healed, is what we read in the text. She's immediately healed. Now, Jesus stops what he's doing. Jesus is walking. There's a crowd all around him. And Jesus says, who touched me? Which Peter has the greatest response ever. Peter says, you're in a crowd, Lord. Everybody. Thank you, Peter, for stating the obvious. I swear I can relate to Peter more than almost anyone in the room can. (laughs) Everybody, Jesus, look around. And Jesus says, no, I felt power leave my body. Now, here's the thing. This is a rhetorical question, kind of. The sinless son of God is walking around. People are touching him, touching him. And then there's this one woman who doesn't touch him, but touches the fringe of his robe, and she is healed immediately. Don't you think that the guy who can heal someone who touched the fringe of his robe also knows who is touching his robe? Yeah, okay, so he did know. The woman works up the courage to say, yeah, it was, it was me. And Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The woman is healed, and she walks away. Jesus, Jesus took time to heal this woman. He offered her dignity and love. In that society, under Levitical law, if you were a Jewish woman in Levitical law, you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go to their version of church. You had to stay on the outside of the society. You had to be on the fringes of everything. If you needed somebody to get, you needed somebody to get stuff for you because you weren't allowed to go out and about. And Jesus welcomes her, receives her, and meets her need, blesses her, and sends her on her way. Jesus treats women the way that every guy and every person in here should treat women. Jesus first revealed himself as the Messiah to a woman in John 4. Women were included in his group of disciples, Mark 15. Women like Mary of Bethany were permitted to sit at his feet beside the men, learning as he taught, which was something that was not culturally accepted at the time, that women would not be allowed to sit at that meeting. And following his resurrection, and we point this out every single Easter, It was women who first found the empty tomb. It was women who first proclaimed that Jesus was resurrected. And this is problematic. Okay, hear me. This is problematic 2,000 years ago where women couldn't even be a witness in court because they were too unreliable. It actually hurt Christianity in that first century that it was women who were the first to proclaim the resurrection. And yet, that's who God chooses. God always chooses what whoever society deems as weak to show off and to make them just not understand what he is doing. I believe that Jesus demonstrated the mission of connecting people with God and each other will only be accomplished when we stop limiting ourselves to one gender. We need to get out of God's way and let him call the people he wants to do ministry and to do the things that he wants them to do. Jesus came to restore God's dream for the world and early Christian leaders recognize that. I love this passage in Galatians. This is Paul writing to a church. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, to me, this is pretty obvious what he's saying. To me, this is pretty obvious that he's saying there's no more hierarchy. But there are some within the church that would say, no, what Paul is saying is that this is only talking about salvation. You see, salvation is now for everybody. And I would say that that's just really poor reading and understanding because at what point in the entire biblical narrative did God not offer salvation to someone just because they were a slave? He didn't. Slaves could always have salvation. So could their masters. At what point could non-Jews not have salvation? There was never a point where the non-Jews couldn't have salvation. If that was the case, Jesus' great-great-great-grandma Rahab wouldn't be his great-great-great-great-grandma Rahab. Rahab wasn't a part of the Jewish community of, of Israel, but she was brought in. And so I would argue that you look at this passage and what you're saying is, oh no, salvation is for everybody. No, what Paul is talking about is like post-Christ Jesus. There's no more hierarchy. There's no more slave over free. There's no more Jew over the Gentile. There's no more male over the female. Paul's saying that within Christ, we're people on equal footing, no matter what your job is, no matter what your background is, and no matter what gender you were born with. God says we are all on equal footing because God doesn't gift based on your gender. God doesn't gift based on who you are. God is a gift giver and a good heavenly father. And the gift that he gives you is about him. It's not about you. It's about him. Okay, now there um, are still people, um, you know, in this day and age that different races, statuses, and genders, but God says that within the body of Christ, within the church and within heaven, there's no hierarchy. Discrimination should not be found within the faith community at all. That should be one of the most distinctive things about our faith is that there should be no discrimination based on on anything that you can discriminate people on. I love the way that Scott McKnight puts it. Scott McKnight is one of the leading New Testament theologians in 2019, and he says about this passage, in the same way that there was to be no cultural or racial distinctions and no social status prejudices, there was to be no sexual prejudice. And understand that this was super progressive. Remember that even the law wouldn't let these women come to court and serve as a witness, even if they saw it, because they would have said, she's not reliable. And they viewed women a lot like they viewed property. And here Paul is saying, no, there's equality. There's supposed to be gender equality. There's not supposed to be discrimination, not amongst you guys. And we all have a role to play because as we look around the world and we know that gender inequality is quite alive and well and thriving and discrimination of all forms. And I'm not trying to minimize others, but I'm talking specifically about gender inequality today. We all have a role to play in restoring God's dream for men and women. This isn't just the responsibility of the women. It's not just the responsibility of the men. It's the responsibility of every person in here who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. We are to reverse the injustices in as much as it is possible and within our control. So a couple challenges for us. One, I want to say, listen and look for the subtle, but also not so subtle ways that we contribute to prolonging this curse of gender inequality. When we say things like, like a girl, there's a negative connotation to that. Why? Why is it when we say it's like a girl, it's weaker or it's not as good or we're taunting someone, why is being like a girl bad? 
But I don't think that when we say things like that, we're necessarily thinking that we're like, oh man, I'm really hoping to further the cause of gender inequality. I think that a lot of times it's good intentioned people or what people with good intentions who say the wrong thing. But that's the point right now in talking about this is think about the things you say and think about the things that you do. If you're uh, a leader at your work or you're in management and you get to make choices of who gets hired and who is promoted, you know, look at yourself. Like, are you only ever looking at guys or are you using a male scorecard in grading people? I mean, how is that fair? And as you look into yourself, say, am I perpetuating? Am I just kicking the ball a little bit further down the road with gender inequality or am I being fair? Am I being reasonable? Am I trying to make the world a better place? Let's call out the remnants of the curse. That means you're just going to have to admit that you're not perfect. You're going to have to admit that at times you do make mistakes, sometimes that you are a little sexist, even if you don't realize it or you treat people differently because they're different. But the part of getting better is to first admit that there's a problem, right? You've heard that a thousand times. But it's the first to admit that there are areas in my life that are not perfect. The second challenge, this one specifically to women in the room, I know that sometimes there's a voice inside of your head um, that whispers that you can't or says uh, that you don't belong. And uh, that voice is Satan. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You know, maybe just as clear as I can be this morning. Because God doesn't say you can't. God doesn't say you don't. God doesn't say you won't. We see God when we look at Jesus and remember how Jesus treated and valued women. You are a gift, and you should see yourself as a gift. So stop listening to that voice. That's your challenge. And if you're a guy, it matters that you and me stand up for women the way that Jesus did. Now, we've talked about this a lot in the past, and we usually have women women speakers come up and talk about this topic. But I think that it's also important occasionally to hear from a guy on this study and on this subject, and specifically the lead pastor of this church, to say that men, in our culture, we're going to hold a lot of the positions of power and influence. Look around. We make up the most of the CEOs. We make up most of the presidents of this country, all of the presidents of this country. A lot of times we have the power and influence. How are we using our power and influence in the jobs that we go through as men who believe in Jesus, who wants us to fight for equality for all? I'll end with a true story here. Um, some of you guys might be familiar with this story. Um, you know, we started in the Radisson, talked about that a lot a few weeks ago, and then we got to move into this building, and it was two churches becoming one. And um, what I didn't mention a few weeks ago was that that church was uh, a form of a Baptist church. There's, there's a lot of different um, branches of the Baptist church, and some are more progressive, and they have different beliefs and all of that. But this was a form of it. And uh, I'll never forget that after that first Sunday, there were so many people here, and it was, it was just awesome. And um, after church, the, um, the people of this Baptist church uh, were just a little bit concerned because we had uh, my wife, Megan, up here singing. And they said, so, like, what is she? Is she just a singer? Or because you, you talked to her, like, she, or you, you mentioned her as a worship leader, and, like, like she's not my leader. And, and as the leader of my family, my wife and kids is how one person told me, as the leader of my wife and family, I'm a little just uncomfortable about the direction of things. And uh, he said, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. And me, 25 years old, said, that's a hill I'm willing to kill you on. And um, <laughs> they didn't come back. They're not here anymore. So, 
our church doubled that week because we had two churches becoming one. And then we went down small, small, small again. And it, it felt like everyone left us and abandoned us. And it felt like, you know, oh, maybe I should have just kept my mouth shut. Like Maybe I should have just let them think whatever they wanted to think. But I look back at that, and that is one of the defining moments of this church, that we were willing to let people walk away. We were willing to let them walk out the front door and never come back if their position was that there's male hierarchy over women, because we do not see that, and I do not see that true in the biblical text. I don't think that's the way God wants this world. I think that that's perpetuating a problem, the fall and the curse, but it is certainly not God's dream. And so since that day, We've stood on that value. That is our position, that men and women are on equal footing. And I'm thankful that Madison Church has been a church that's supportive of women, not just me, but people all around me. I think of Rebecca and Tamara who lead our creative arts teams, literally picking the music and setting things up and scheduling volunteers and making actual decisions. They're not managing. They're not doing the stuff I don't want to do, but they're actually making decisions and they're up here, and we're not afraid to call them leaders. I think of Ginger and Brianna and Megan, who every single week coordinate our children's ministry. That's a big job. Sometimes they have a ton of kids back there, and sometimes these kids didn't have breakfast, and they stayed up too late last night, and their parents dragged them here and dropped them off, and, and we've even had parents leave. And <laughs> we were like, Who's, where's your mom and dad? We don't know. But they do an amazing job back there. Again, scheduling volunteers, making decisions. They set up the services how they want it in the different rooms that they do. And, and it's not me delegating things I don't want to do. It's really letting them, giving them leadership responsibilities. And Alyssa, she plans our give back events. And you've been a blessing. I really appreciate it because... Before you, uh, we would be coming into these events, stopping at five different stores on the way here as I remembered all of the things I forgot. And I'd be sending someone to the store and I'd be texting them as I was remembering more things that I forgot. And we'd be putting all of this stuff together as we went on. But this last spring, we had an event with 230 people was our best estimate. It, that's probably low, but 230 different people. And we were crushed. And this building was not built for 230 people to just be hanging out. And we were crushed. But the event went so well because of how well prepared Alyssa was. Even though we only had maybe like 10 volunteers ready to go because we thought there'd only be 100 people and there was like three times that many and and things were not going right. It wasn't to say that it was a problem-free morning, but it was to say that Alyssa in a real leadership role was able to make real leadership decisions. And because of that, Rebecca and Tamara and Ginger and Megan and Brianna and Alyssa, they're able to take real responsibility for the accomplishments that we've had at this church. It isn't just a pat on the back, nice job, participation trophy, but it's to say that there's real success at this church. People have been really baptized here. Relationships have been really fixed here. People have experienced financial freedom here, and it's because we are led by both men and women. I'm so thankful for these leaders and the contributions that they make to the mission of connecting people with God and each other in Madison. But can we, every person in this room or watching online, can we agree that we're not going to stop working until every little girl that grows up in our church has the opportunity to fully develop and exercise the gifts that God has given to her? Can we agree that there will be a day where we laugh at the notion that there was a time that maybe gender would have limited the types of jobs that women could have? 
can we just agree that men and women have equal footing in the kingdom of God? And are we willing to not just agree, but to do something about it, starting with us?